from Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. We make some mistakes, probably a lot, but we keep trying and we hope that it's a benefit to you tonight. Our prayer tonight is going to be given by none other than Cedric. Um, dear Glorious Father, uh, I just want to praise you uh, in everything that I do. I want to pray for uh, truth and love tonight, uh, that we may come through you uh, through an open mind and an open heart. Um, and I just want to preserve those two things for us tonight and uh, hope that we can reach others in truth and, uh, and love. Um, and for these, the, uh, these two things, um, hopefully we can advance as a, just a city, as a culture, and as a people. Um, and just let us be uh, shepherds to sheep, and also let us be sheep to you. Um, I say these things uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Thank you, my brother. Beautiful prayer. All these prayers are beautiful. I really appreciate the courage to come up and do it. Breaking Bread with Warren Puckett. We, it's available every Tuesday streaming, not streaming, every Tuesday we load a new show up. It's available for you now by going to HOTM. TV. Is that correct? That is correct, according to Seth. So you can start watching Breaking Bread with Warren Puckett, and his messages keep getting better and better. The first ones were great, but they're getting better and better. Additionally, I had the honor of being interviewed by Bishop Earl. Many of you know Bishop Earl and his program, uh, Ex-Mormon Files, at www.exmormonfiles.com. And those programs are going to start becoming available January 13th, 20th, and 27th and had a great time being interviewed by uh, Bishop Earl, and, and we really enjoyed our time together, so if you want to check those out. Now listen, we have a, a sample booklet. This is the printed version. It's not the booklet yet, uh, but we're having these done up, and it's a workbook. It's 40 pages, and uh, we're having them done up, and it covers all the content from last week, the content we're going to cover tonight, and we're going to go over into next week, and it covers that as well. And so uh, you can just listen, but this will be available to you in a couple weeks online. And uh, we hope that you'll take advantage of taking it and looking at it. I think it's a very important piece. And we hope that you'll, we're printing them because we want people to take them and to really challenge what the content is. Use your scripture, go in, and if you like it, hand it off to somebody else who's a seeker of truth. So we'll talk more about that as it comes up. We left off last week with part one of Material Religion is Dead. 
and we will use the Bible to prove it. That's the name of this series. Material religion is dead, and we will use the Bible to prove it. And the first thing we pointed out, we have it up on the board, I don't know if you can see it, but the first thing we pointed out is something Paul said. He said, first comes the physical, then comes the spiritual. That's like a template for how God works. First comes the spiritual, then comes, I mean the physical, then comes the spiritual. And then we went to scripture and we showed how God first made Adam, this is up on the board, out of the clay, then he breathed into him, then he became a living soul. First the material, then the spiritual. And then we proved that God uh, created a nation of Israel materially, and we showed how he related to them materially. And among a number of other proofs, uh, we pointed out how God then provided that nation, really the world, a material Messiah, uh, um, the Word made flesh. So, uh, and in that we have a unique flip on the material and spiritual. We then il illustrated how this promised Messiah fulfilled all the material foundation that the nation was built upon, but that he said, I came to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Uh, very spiritual. He, so he comes materially to that material nation, but he says, but I come to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. These, he introduces some spiritual things. We then showed how this material Messiah, 100% man, 100% God, called 12 material apostles, literal men, fishermen, tax collectors, to gather from the house of Israel and to bring in any who would believe to be a bride for uh, 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 the material believers, and Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. They will not prevail against uh, my bride. And then we said how he promised he would return materially and save them from material destruction uh, if they believed on him, that he would call from that nation and he would save them from being destroyed when all the rest of it was destroyed. And we noted that how, this is how we ended the show last week, in 70 AD, all things Jesus warned the nation about in Matthew chapter 23 and 24 came to pass within a generation where over a million Jews were materially wiped out, where their bodies were thrown into Gehenna, where their temple was literally taken down stone by stone and uh, not one stone laid upon the other, according to Jesus. Their genealogies, which were so important to them to establish who they were as Jews, were wiped out, burned up. Their priesthood was done. Their ordinances, all their material sacrifices and all that done and over. But that his church of faithful believers were saved. And that now a new Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem was material. Now a new Jerusalem is what began to take over. A new heaven, a new earth began to fully reign, which I would now strongly suggest was and remains completely spiritual in nature. And it's really important to realize, uh, oh, I have a new uh, eraser too. It's Cassidy. Cassidy, you can erase all that on the board. So it's really important to realize that God, the, to the nation of Israel, was his bride. To whom he betrothed, he was engaged to her, and then whom he married. And you can read about the engagement when he promised Abraham, I will make you a great nation. That was the betrothal to that material nation. And then when God said, listen, I'm, he's going to marry the nation. When did he marry? 
If you read Exodus 24, uh, you'll see when God married uh, the nation of Israel. It was on Sinai when Moses came down and he presented the law. This is the covenant that we're going to make. And it says that Moses wore a veil because they couldn't see his face. This was the marriage. Did you know that we also know that God said, I will divorce. So he betrothed, he married the nation of Israel, and he divorced her. Read Jeremiah 3.8. God says, and I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and gave her a bill of divorcement. God divorced, he says right there in Jeremiah 3.8, the nation of Israel. But he also promised that he would come back in and he would gather up his bride out of them. And that was all through Christ. Okay? So it's one thing to say, after all that, that material religion is dead and that everything is now spiritual. It's another thing to prove it through the Word. And that is what I intend to try to do tonight. Pay particular attention to this because what it means is, in my estimation, all the plain church, plain church, okay? Everything that comes along with it, from the Catholics to the Baptists to the non-denoms to the Mormons to the Calvinists, all of it is over. It's church plain and that it's really a spiritual gig. So what does the Bible say when it comes to what God does next? After he wipes out material religion, let me go to the board. What God does next is the scripture says that this is a cloud and this is a throne and I'm running out of space here, but this is Jesus smiling, arms raised. He sits on the throne and he now reigns over all. That's where we are. Okay? And he does it by the Spirit. Having destroyed the material and saved his church from physical destruction, his bride, the body of Christ now is today entirely spiritual, made up of spiritually regenerated believers. Nothing that can be shaken remains. Again, nothing that can be shaken remains. We're going to point that out. Now, God writes his laws upon individuals' hearts. Did you know that? We're going to give you some scriptures there. Hebrews 8.10 says, For this covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. He says it again in, in Hebrews 10.16. Uh, Believers are now the epistles. Did you know that scripture says that? Look at 2 Corinthians 3.3. 3. Paul writes, for as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. This is all talking about a relational religion between the individual, what's written on their heart and God. The plane of church is over. It's done. Okay, and then we go on. It's scripture tells us no man needs to teach his neighbor know the Lord. 
Why? Because they will all know him. If you look at uh, uh, Hebrews 8.11, it says, And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, the least to the greatest. This is called reconcile. This is God winning and bringing everybody in. All will. It doesn't, it doesn't, now the churches can function today as teaching the word and preaching the word. I'm not saying that's not important, but what I am saying is the role of an institutional church on people is done for. We're going to keep going. All things that can be shaken must go away. You have to read Hebrews 12 and start at like verse 20. What the writer of Hebrews does is he says, Listen, back in the Old Covenant, we used to go up to the mountain that would shake with the fire of God, and everybody was afraid and fearful. And he goes on and he says, God, God says, one more time, this was written in Hebrews before the indestruction, I will shake everything again. I will shake it up like no other. When did he do that? When he took Jerusalem and he shook it and he caused all the material stuff that could be shaken to fall and crumble. He says, yet once more, I will shake things. And then he says, in order that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Okay, remember that. Only unshakable things will remain in the kingdom that Christ oversees now, having wiped out the material. So there are no vestiges of material remains in his kingdom. Why? Because they can be shaken. There's no brick and mortar edifices that should be built up to the glory of man. Why? Because they can be shaken. They cannot pay their bills. They can uh, come to under destruction. Uh, there are no institutional hierarchies. There's no boards. There's no intermediaries into the life of believers. Why? Because intermediaries of men can be shaken. They can have affairs. They can fall away from God. They can start teaching false doctrine. All of that stuff is unreliable. It is God and it is the Holy Spirit that we look to now. Anything that can be shaken has been done away with. Read Hebrews and you'll see it there. Uh, look at, there's no rules or policies. Uh, as all are part of the body of Christ and we have the Spirit in us and the Spirit governs us. We don't need the disciplinary councils when the church had yet to be destroyed materially. That's all ancient history that was for that time. We don't need them anymore. Why? Well, let me give you a, a, a passage. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in the thing that he allows. Another one, Romans 14.10. Why do you judge thy brother? Or why do you set it not thy brother? For we all shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We don't need to stand before the judgment seats of each other. We don't need to have men calling in for disciplinary councils. We have the Holy Spirit who is constantly taking believers and saying, you ought to not do that. That one you need to repent for. That one, oh, you better turn from that one. That's called the spiritual kingdom. This is the one he overreigns. He is not over a bunch of institutional churches, a brick and mortar and men and boards saying, all right, you do that here and you do that. Here. Okay, my kingdom. It is not material at all. That was destroyed. Why? Because it can be shaken. Uh, no tithes. 
Why? No building funds, no collections. Everything's a free will offering. Free will by what? The Holy Spirit moving in the heart of somebody. Moves on you to give, you give. Can't, doesn't move on you to give, you don't. We know that when you read 2 Corinthians 9, 7, every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. As every man as you're purposed in your heart. Don't give grudgingly or of necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. There's no tithes. That can be shaken. That can be moved. Are you paying a full tithe, 10% in the Hebrew? No. That's why we do away with it. All Christian commandments are summarized in two things, faith and love, which are seated in the human heart, guided by the Holy Spirit. 1 John 3.23, and this is his commandment, that we should believe, and this is his commandment, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of the Son of God and love one another as he gave us commandment. There it is, too. We, don't have, we have nothing else. And we are free to pursue that according to the Spirit. And we are responsible before God on how we do that. We don't need a brick-and-mortar institution to do that. They should be shaken and down in the dust with the temple because now the Holy Spirit guides. <coughs> Listen, God has had the total victory. This is a radical thought for people. All you have to do is read Scripture Read the New Testament, and you'll see he has had the total victory. Let me tell you, read 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay? But every man to his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Listen. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Okay? Then comes the end. Okay? And when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he shall put all things under his feet, and when all things shall be subdued unto him, when all things have been subdued unto him, then shall the Son himself also be subject to him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Even it says the Son himself. So it, it, you have to ask yourself, has Christ put everything under his feet? Has Christ had the victory? Or, as many people believe, he's still waiting to have the victory. Well, I'm going to prove it through Scripture. We could stop here and argue that the point has been more than made, that the material had its place, but everything since the wipeout of the material is all spiritually uh, lived by believers. Unfortunately, when it comes to men and women playing church, they forget that God reigns through the Spirit and that believers are governed by Him and Him alone. So how about we put a nail in all of this? And I'm gonna just, now I'm going to start to teach. I, I feel like I've been teaching, but now we're really going to get... What does this mean, God is now all in all? What does that mean? Very important, so let me teach. In Acts chapter 3, for people who come to campus, this might be a bit of a reiteration, and I apologize. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, by the power of Jesus Christ, healed a man that was born lame. We've been talking about this in our church for a number of weeks now. This miracle opened Peter up to preaching. And he was, what was he preaching? He was preaching Christ Jesus. To whom? To devout Jews. Early. 
And he told them that they had killed the just one and the holy one and the prince of life and that they are rulers and they had done it ignorantly. That's what Peter says to them. You did it out of ignorance, okay? And he, in the face of all that information, Peter says, repent, change your minds, Jewish audience, and turn. That means move, turn away from your present course that your sins would be blotted out. He preaches to these Jews and he says, you put the just and holy one to death, now turn and repent so that your sins may be blotted out. He then he adds, listen, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. He says to these guys, repent and turn and be ready to have your sins blotted out for when the time of refreshing comes from the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which was preached to you, right? Whom the heaven must receive. We remember he ascended up there. And Peter says, listen, he's going to send Jesus Christ back. And this is going to be a time of the restitution of all things, who the heaven has to receive until the time of restitution of all things, which God has spoken of by the mouth of the holy prophets since the world began. Now, point blank, ask yourself, what does the context and Peter's words what does it sound like he's talking about? Does it sound like he's talking to them? Or does he sound like he's talking to us down here? Are we waiting for the times of restitution? Are we waiting for the times of refreshing? Or was he talking to that audience saying, repent now and turn because the time of refreshing is going to come when he sends, God sends Jesus back to wipe out material religion. He's preached Jesus to them. He has told them that they put Jesus to death in ignorance. He's directed them to repent and turn, that their sins can be blotted out. And he has done all of this in preparation that when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of whom? The Lord. From the presence of the Lord again. He's going to come from where he's at to the presence again. And he shall send Jesus Christ who has preached to them, who the heavens received until the restitution of all things. That's everything spiritual. All right. There are theories out there on what Peter meant when he used the line times of refreshing. There are theories on what he meant when he said he shall, God will send Jesus Christ again. There's grand theories of until the restitution of all things. But right here in front of us, we have what Peter says and the context where he said it. These guys, repent you guys, turn now, get your sins blotted out before he is sent back and the times of refreshing is initiated. You guys turn. Does it sound like Peter is speaking of a time frame that's way, way out? Or is it a thing that he is telling them, you better repent now before this happens? Now, Paul also spoke of the same time period that Peter says is the uh, restitution of all things or the time of refreshing. You know what Paul called it? Paul called it the dispensation of the fullness of times. That was Paul's way of saying it. Have you ever heard that phrase? What does it mean and to whom does it apply? This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1.10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both in heaven and which are in earth in him. When is this dispensation of the fullness of times? Is he speaking of a time to occur way out? Or was Paul telling the people in Ephesus... Look at the dispensations of fullness of times is happening when Christ in, is gathering everything in heaven and on earth. 
It's the same thing that Peter was talking about when he talked about the restitution of all things. Now step back to the 19th century. A Christian man named John Darby lived. And he laid the groundwork of a theory called dispensationalism. And remember, Paul said, dispensation of the fullness of times. Well, Darby said, I'm going to formulate these seven dispensations, and I'm going to create the seventh being the millennial reign of Jesus on this earth. The theory makes great use, and some good sense actually, of periods of time in the Bible and the number seven. Darby created a theme from Scripture that was pretty convincing, so convincing that Joseph Smith, the Mormon fame, he tried to say, yes, we agree with dispensations, and I am the one who will oversee the last dispensation of time. He borrowed that from Darby, who was a contemporary of, of Smith's. As an FYI, just to let you know, dispensationalism was not a theory before Darby in the 1800s. But it's a thriving way today in Christian uh, eschatology, a driving force behind people screaming, the end is near, the end is near, as they've been doing for 2,000 years. Because of all this rhetoric, most believers, myself included for quite a while, have embraced the notion that a dispensation is a period of time. We believe this is what a period of time is. And since Paul wrote that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together one in all things in Christ, both in heaven which on earth, we are prone to see things the way Darby interpreted them or misinterpreted them, including how to define dispensation. But let me just give you a Greek lesson here, all right? Dispensation and the Greek word that it comes from that has nothing to do with a period of time. Nothing to do with a period of time. It has to do with an administration of affairs. A dispensation is administration of affairs. Why? Let me show you. The Greek word uh, for dispens translated to dispensation in the King James is oikonomia. Oikonomia. Uh, does that sound like an English word to you? Like maybe economy or economia? It's the same thing. It means an economic, and not related to money, but an economy of time, a period of administration. We give this example. When we have a Republican president in office, he's not over a dispensation of time. He's over an economy. He's over an administration of the Republican House. And then when he leaves... And a, and a Democrat president takes over, he is over that administration, the Reagan administration versus the Clinton administration. They're both administrations the way of doing things. In Vine's expository dictionary, which is great in understanding Greek, it says, listen, quote, a dispensation is not a period or epoch, which is common but erroneous use of the word, but a mode, a mode of dealing an arrangement or an administration of affairs. That's what oikonomia means in Greek. It is a mode of dealing with something. So when we talk about the dispensation of the Old Testament, we're talking about God dealing through law, that administration. We are not talking about a period of time. And when we talk about the administration or the economia of grace, we are talking about the way God is dealing with the house then. And it is not, it's the same God, it's different administrations. The term dispensation automatically makes us think this period to this period, and it's a complete misnomer, 
All right? So when Paul speaks of the dispensation of the fullness of times, and when Peter is telling those men then and there that, a, that at that age they need to repent, have their sins blotted out, when the time of refreshing will come in the presence of Christ, they are both speaking of the ultimate completion of the former administration, the absolute completion of that former administration. The Clinton is out of office he is gone. All of his administrative ways are over. We don't mix any of the law. We don't mix any of the material. We don't mix any of those former ways with any of that stuff, even the way they did New Testament church, because it was all finished. The oikonomia was done when Christ came and sent by God to wrap up and introduce this uh, fullness of times. The Expositor's Bible Commentary, talking about the dispensation of the fullness of times, Paul's words says this. Here Paul uses it to suggest the administration or putting into effect of God's far-reaching redemptive plan. Okay? So you could almost say that the entire, the entire Old Testament and the entire New Testament was the wrapping up of the former oikonomia, which is everything that had to do with it. So today, when we see vestiges of the former oikonomia, things that can still be shaken, creeping their way into the body of believers, we have stepped back in what God has planned. We have stepped back into a former way, and we have said, I want to belong to something that can be shaken. I want to be belong to something that's still fallible. I want to be something that's governed by men so they'll tell me what to do. And I don't have to think for myself. And I don't have to be responsible to God. I have to be responsible to the guy wearing the collar. It's insane. It has no place in the body. Okay? The far-reaching plan of God is spiritual. The kingdom of God is not of this world, Jesus said. He's reigning over it. And it's entirely a spiritual thing between you and him. One more factor to consider. Just, and we'll end with this and we'll go to the phones. When did this fullness of times that Paul talked about begin? Well, let's use scripture to tell us. Galatians 4.4. 4. Ready? Paul says, But when the fullness of times was come, when the fullness of times was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. That's when it started. The dispensation of the fullness of times started when the material Messiah came into this world. It ended when the material Messiah lived his life, crucified, died, resurrected, ascended, came back with judgment upon that house, that oikonomia. And the dispensation of the fullness of times in terms of the material was done for at that point. One more thing, I'm sorry, I have to do this. The writer of Hebrews makes it perfectly clear. Just go to bed with this uh, on your minds. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear that the dispensation of the fullness of times, the restitution of all things, the full presence of the former administration, the full presence of the latter uh, administration could not take place until the former administration was completely gone. Okay? The writer of Hebrews makes this clear. 
Hebrews 8.13 says, In speaking of the new covenant, he treats the first as obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is now ready to vanish away. He's talking about all the material vestiges of religion. All of it's ready to vanish away. Next week, and we're gonna, there's more here, but next week we're going to get in and we're going to talk about how men have not allowed this to be. They have said, no, we need, to, we need to form organizations. They started by saying, let's call these other men early church fathers. And let's, sit, let's follow a man named Constantine. And let's follow a man named this. And let's follow this church. And let's follow that denomination. And let's look at a restoration of everything everybody's grappling for material domain over people's lives. And they do it so that they can implement what they believe. I think they really believe this is how we got to do it. But it's not the spirit. It's not. And that's why it is such a mess and so bloody ugly. Does God work through it? Of course he does. But if we just saw what the scripture says, it's done. And he reigns. And I'm going to prove that he reigns next week as we continue on with that. We have a lot of, uh, my wife does all the um, graphics. She's probably going to kill me because, but we're not leaving them. We're going to use them next week. In the meantime, uh, we'll wrap this up. Again, all of it will be available to you in that uh, pamphlet uh, in the next couple weeks. Operators, while they clear the calls, let's take a look at this spot. We'll come back to emails and calls. We're back. Uh, we have Brandon from Vicksburg, Mississippi. Brandon, you're on Heart of the Matter. This is Mr. Sean. This is Mr. Sean. Oh, man, it's good to hear from you. Good to hear from you. Um, I hope you had a good Christmas and everything I thought about you. Uh, I hope you and your family was all right. Thanks, my brother. Now, um, here recently, a lot of churches here where I live has been getting together. Awesome. Kind of like get the youth together to do plays and to meet each other and hang out and stuff like that. And um, the LDS church here got involved and they want there you can see when they're young folks to come hang out with us and they could discuss theological topics and stuff like that. And I mean, I saw Jesus, you know, in the Bible, you see Jesus, he, he sits with the people who don't know the gospel. He sits with those people. He's with them. But I wanted to know, do they have honest intentions? Or are they, are they just trying to, I guess, proselytize or, or whatever you want to call it? 
because I want to share the gospel with them, and I do, but they don't want to share the gospel with me. They, they share their teachers. And I'm wondering, is it, do they have a motive behind letting the youth get in there and hang out with other kids, or what should we do as a Christian? What should I do? Should I be prepared to, to be stabbed by them or, you know, open arms and brace them? What should I do? You know, it's a fine line because you, you want to teach the kids to be loving and you want them to be accepting and you want them to not be suspicious of everybody around the corner. But I can almost guarantee you that when the LDS open up their arms, their meetings and their, their, their stuff, it is all for recruitment and uh, to proselytize and bring people into the faith. And um, we live in an age when, you know, everyone wants to be politically friendly and, and open and and that's really important, and so they're, they're capitalizing on that. And uh, I, I, I really don't like to uh, try to drive a big wedge, but you gotta face the facts. They are trying to recruit those youth to their side. And they often win because their programs are superior to little small churches and the numbers and their money, and it can be pretty overwhelming. So I would just be very, very careful and, uh, and constantly uh, talk about the differences, but also preach to those kids, don't, don't be mean, don't be hateful, don't yell names, but you know, try to recruit them to the Lord, as best I can say. Oh, that's right, you know, tell them the truth and love. And, uh, truth and I love. I appreciate your help, because I'm sure y'all might have ran into stuff like that before. And um, I like I said last, I appreciate the show. Uh, you, you helped me so much, and I love watching and you always look different. <laughs> yeah, that's called uh, undisciplined and then disciplined living. It comes, goes back and forth. <laughs> Love you, brother. Thanks for watching. All right, I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. It's always something so comforting about that, that Warren Suzanne Southern accent. Uh, to Mark in Ireland, Kuna Sutatu Kara. And that is Gaelic for, how you doing, my brother? And I just wanted to uh, <clears throat> let him know that we got his pet care package, and it's wonderful, and it won't be distributed to anybody but me. Cat uh, says, our Catholics Christian, I was wondering what your thoughts are. I went to Catholic school as a child and didn't realize until much later that they believe in what Cat says is a different Jesus, a Jesus who only partially paid for my sins. Catholics believe in purgatory and praying for the dead. Also, I find that priests and nuns are not scriptural. What are your thoughts on Catholicism, and can we call them Christian? Well, you know, uh, any who claim Christ, and, they, and I, that, I know this is liberal, but any who claim Christ as their Savior, I'm hands off. I just, you want it? That's fine. But Catholicism is a church. It's not an individual. I don't know what the heart of Catholicism is. I have some opinions about it. But individual Catholics are very different. So Catholics are people. Catholicism is a church. What Catholics believe in their heart is a very different picture often than what the church teaches. Same things with everybody, really. So which are Christian? It's up to God to decide. Who in the Catholic uh, monolithic church is his, has been born of the Spirit, who really loves Jesus, and who bears the fruit of a Christian? That's up for God to decide, but when someone tells me that I'm a Catholic and I love Jesus, I'm hands off. I'm, I praise Jesus. I, I'm with you, brother. I, I, I'm just not going to make that division anymore. 
I know that there are people who they'll say, I love Jesus, and they're Catholic, and they don't know him. Paul said, if Christ is preached, he's preached, whether it be of insincerity or sincerity. And it's up to God to judge anyway. How can we look into the heart of somebody? We've always maintained that with the LDS, that they're, they're, the Mormonism, the church, I believe I know what's at the heart of that. But the individual Mormons, you know, it's impossible to tell. As impossible as it is to tell in a charismatic church who there really has a heart for Jesus. Or in a conservative uh, Methodist church or Presbyterian church, who there really has the heart for Jesus. If they're claiming Jesus, I'm hands off. Praise God, you love the Lord. Let's grow together and see where the Spirit leads. Nate Motter, Nate Motterman, he says, I hear you in an email. Thank you. Uh, thank God someone hears me. And then Axel Lagergren Genselius from Sweden says, I often feel ashamed for being a believer in Christ. Um, he says, I'm so afraid that people will judge me. I'm afraid what people will think and that I, they'll think I'm wrong, stupid, or gullible. And then he says, I love the way you tell people about Jesus without fear or shame, so thank you. Keep doing it. I love you. God bless you, my brother, with love from Stockholm. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure. I have to admit, when I first became a, a Christian, I was reticent to share Jesus. I felt an embarrassment. And so the boldness comes with time and presence of the Spirit and the Word of God as you study it. You become more bold when you see what those who came before you were like, what the apostles were like, what Christ was like, John the Baptist. And so it takes time. Also, I know uh, my uh, son-in-law is Swede, and I know that the uh, country of Sweden, uh, they're reserved people, and I think that uh, maybe spouting off religious beliefs, that culture can be uh, much more different and difficult than it is here in America. So that plays into it too. And I, I know, I haven't been to Sweden, but I'm told it's a reserved, quiet culture. They don't want to infringe, and it's quite liberal. And so I can see why you have that culture, but you just keep pushing into Christ, trust in Him, and not by compulsion do you have to uh, preach Him, but by the Spirit, and that will happen. Uh, Ronald says, uh, I've been a Mormon all my life, 56 years. Six years ago, my wife and I finally stopped the madness and stopped attending church. In my 50 years active in the church, I never bore my testimony. I avoided lessons that dealt with it. I'm one of those Mormons, <laughs> this is funny, that never, ever, ever did anything. <laughs> I got married at 19 and avoided a mission. I've been married for 36 years, very happy. I've been telling my wife for years that the church doctrine just doesn't add up and make sense. We have been listening to your YouTube stuff. My wife keeps saying, that's what you've been saying for years. My wife is one of those LDS who goes to church to please others, but doesn't have a clue what she believes. Thanks, Ron. Ivy says, Sean, at first, this is, I woke up from an awful situation three weeks ago. She says, at first, like everyone else, I didn't like you. You were loud and aggressive, but for some reason, I kept listening and watching YouTube videos and doing my own research and uh, we have left the church. And so uh, we get these emails and, uh, and they uh, affirm that those who share Jesus, who talk about Mormonism, comparative religious studies, things like that, the message does go, it does help. So it's not just me, it's everyone who's been doing it, Sandra Tanner and everyone else, Bishop Earl, Doris Hansen, everybody, Chip Thompson, Bill McKeever, people around the globe who are doing it. Warren is now joining those ranks. 
People, it does plant seeds, and everybody brings something different to the table. Bishop Earl is very uh, soft-spoken and kind, and, and he reaches a certain segment that I never would touch. I reach another segment, and, and Warren will, and it's just, so she just uh, thanks uh, that it, it worked out. This is from Caden T. I wanted to start. Uh, I was raised Mormon and lived in Utah. I've been ex expected to live by insane and rational teachings. My question is, what translation of the Bible is favored among Christians? That's a really interesting question. I've read various readings on the internet, and I can't get one clear answer. It's typical for someone who's LDS to say, just tell me the one that we're, we're supposed to use. And she says, I find the NIV much easier to understand than the King James. Um, and she goes on and talks a little bit about that. What do I suggest? Find the Bible you can understand. Uh, I used to be a stickler about King James, and I'm frankly much less impressed with the King James as I've grown older. And uh, I think any version that you can understand and I mean that you can, if, you, if you can only understand a child's version of the Bible where it's just written in a very simplistic, this is the story, and that's what you can understand, you read that. Because the Spirit of God is operating through the, the message behind those words. These words are just capturing ideas that are full of the Spirit. So you read what you can understand, you search to the best of whatever ability you have in time and inclination, and God's Spirit will work through you. And that's why I'm no longer dogmatic on uh, versions. I like to read all of them and see what's going on. Even I was in a bookstore uh, today, and I saw the, 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 the way in the bookstore. And I used to say, the way, or the message, or the dummy's guide to the Bible. Whatever it is that you can understand, you read it. This is from Adam G. In 2004, I left Mormonism. I lost family, friends, and others because of this. I quickly blamed God and believed I was an atheist. I stumbled onto one of your videos and was intrigued. I wrote you personally in anger. I asked how you could believe in such nonsense. You weren't angry with me. You told me that you understood my anger with God because uh, I was right. The God I had believed in did not exist. I didn't. That was a pretty good answer. I have no idea I said that. You told me to find God. I mean, that's pretty, pretty funny. I mean, uh, obviously it's the Spirit, because I probably wouldn't have said that if it was me. Find Christ, you said. Twelve or thirteen years later, I look back and see that as a pivotal moment in my life, your advice led me to God. I am saved. I never thanked you. I am sure you receive emails of people who thank you. Just I want to make sure that you knew my gratitude, and I pray for you in your ministry, and, that, and, and thank you for your kindness. Um, and don't take that wrong. I just, I mean, it surprises me sometimes that I would say anything that was, that was kind of good and reasonable. But he didn't believe in a real God. He believed in one who didn't exist, who was once a man and, you know, had a bunch of wives and all that stuff. He did not know him. And that's one of the marked differences between people who are Christian and Latter-day Saints is that when you come to know the true and living God, it's night and day. And the LDS have a hard time believing that because they haven't experienced the day with God. They've only experienced the night. So try to, try to think of that. This is from Mitch. I have watched all your episodes. You are a liar and a cheat, a glutton and a fool. For the past decade, I have seen you go from being passive and non-confrontational, even in the face of blatant misinformation, 
to white hot anger and raw passion when callers have gotten under your skin. I've heard you insult people and demean them, but also console and show a love to your fellow man that only God could give you. I have stayed by you in prayer and I've thought uh, and in thought since I first saw the ministry when you changed focus uh, and started focusing on the body, I stood by you. When you railed against faith healings and charlatans, I applauded you. When you took a stand against tradition and for tradition's sake, and when you had debates with those in the body who alleged heresy, I was watching through it all. We got to see you change. We got to see a 40-year Mormon on his walk with Christ every week and twice on Sunday. And even though we have never met, I can honestly say that through you, God has changed me, not overnight, but le or leaps and bounds. But... Uh, but like you in baby steps, one day at a time through my walk has not been captured on TV for 10 years. But I just wanted to say we love you and are grateful. And he goes on, thanks. And, you know, that's how all of us are. That's how all of us should be. I had lunch with a woman today, and she said, I'm losing friends. Uh, I, I left Mormonism. I lost all my friends, all her friends. After 40-some-odd years of being a Latter-day Saint, active Relief Society, lost them all. She becomes a Christian. She gets fully involved. She's engaged with people. And she starts to believe in this filthy, rotten, dirty, you're not a Christian, you're not saved, I'm not talking to you anymore idea called preterism. And guess what? All the people in her church, they won't talk to her. And the good friends are starting to say, no, 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 you stay away. And it's really unfortunate. But it is the path of a truth seeker that you will, like this man says, you will change. You're going to be an embarrassment sometimes. You're going you're gonna to make a fool of yourself. You're going to stand for things that you won't stand for another time. But that is called growth. It's called maturation. It's called immaturity to stand on something and never, ever, ever let it go. And I hope we can lose that in the body. I hope we can lose that idea that it's wrong to change and that it's okay to alter where you once were and where you are now. We have an off-air question. Uh, can you lower it? Oh, it says, can I, could you speak about heresy? I was called a heretic because I thought Jesus came back in 70 AD and didn't buy into the whole premillennial dispensational stuff. Am I a heretic? Heresis is the Greek for heretic, and all it means is somebody of a different opinion. So you are a heretic. Uh, you're a heretic to those who are uh, dispensationalists, and dispensationalists are a heretic to you. But in today's vernacular, it has a connotation of apostasy, of not being saved, of being outside of the faith. And uh, it's really a filthy, mean word today. But uh, So Paul uh, was called a heretic, just to let you know. And he says that in Scripture, that you called me a heretic, somebody who is outside. I hope that most of us are are, her, are heretical when we look at orthodoxy. I hope everyone is growing towards levels of heresy, but I mean that in the old-fashioned sense, not in the modern sense. I hope we are collected and united in love and that our doctrine, doctrinal differences don't make a hill of beans a difference on the way we're going to treat each other and love each other. But I hope people are growing in faith. I mean, Paul talks about knowing the, the depth, the height, the width, the mystery of Christ, the love that is and to know and knowledge, Peter talks about this, knowledge, this gnosko, all of that is so vitally important to growth. And so 
if you're an honest person, an honest believer, and you're a truth seeker, you have to admit that the, there are things that you thought were true when you first became a Christian that you, at, through study of Scripture, have seen were not. And it's not that they aren't true, it's just that they're not, they're not the complete truth that you once thought they were. I guess we're building upon things, line upon line, precept upon precept, like a summer shower, giving everybody his wisdom. His wisdom! Line upon line. It's a great, it, it's a great uh, uh, song from Saturday's Warrior. And once that, once that theme song gets in your heart, you don't forget it, Christian or not. Gary says, what would he say about not all are saved, particularly the story of Esau and Jacob? Uh, I don't think all are saved. I do not believe that for a second. But you have to say saved from what? Okay, so when Peter says to the Jews, repent and have your sins blotted out so that you can be saved, what is he talking about? I believe he was saying you can be saved from the coming destruction. I believe that's exactly what they were teaching. You can be saved from being wiped out at the coming destruction. And I believe that when we preach the gospel to people, we say, you need to be saved. What are we talking about? We are talking about coming destruction to their soul and flesh in the afterlife. They will be, have their own fleshly ways rubbed away by the, uh, in the lake of fire, by the brimstone and, and God's presence. And so you can be saved from that. How? By being covered in the blood of Jesus. So when we talk about being saved, I, I do not preach everybody's saved, not in the least. In fact, I think most are not. Okay, I hope that makes sense. And then Bill says, I would love to support your ministry. I have noticed that you uh, acknowledge that God created man, but you do not mention the angels that he was talking to in Genesis. And anyway, he goes on, he said, if you would please acknowledge that God was speaking among themselves at the time of creation, I would happily send you some donations. And he says, this is not a grammatical error when he made donations, plural. And I wrote him back and I told him, uh, we're not going to be bought in the ministry. And uh, I don't appreciate it. I think it's sick. So, uh, and then Ramon Cruz writes, is faith dynamic? How is faith dynamic? And my response is, faith is dynamic by, in, and through love. Our faith is active and dynamic by, in, and through our love. And just to summarize that, and I know I've talked about it before, um, we have an idea that, you know, you just go out and love. The love you are able to extend to God and to others is directly related to the amount of faith that you possess, okay? The less faith, the less love. The more faith, the more love. How do you get faith? By the hearing of the word. So when you, when you get in the word and you study the word and you hear the spirit working through the word, your faith grows and guess what? So does your love. Why can we say that? Well, the word says, forgive your, turn, uh, give, do good when someone does evil to you. Return evil with good. Do you believe that? Well, if you do, then you have some faith. That faith, because you believe it, will allow you, when someone treats you with evil, to do good to them. 
You see how the faith in the promises of the Bible relate to the love that you're able to extend. If you said, I don't believe that, I don't have faith in that promise, I think that evil should be returned with evil, then you don't have the faith, you won't have the love. When God says, For, forgive seven times 70, if you say, no, I'll forgive six times three, you don't have the faith, you won't have the love. It is directly tied to the faith, the love that you have. And, and unless we get that understanding, we're going to forever be frustrated with trying to love people when, without giving much attention to our faith. Faith comes first. It has to be that you trust in the promises and teachings and ideas and philosophies of God. And as that faith grows, so will your love. So when you start off and you're little in faith, you don't have that much love as a new believer. And, but as you grow, your love commensurately should grow. When it doesn't, you're not producing fruit. Why aren't you producing fruit of love? It's because your faith is weak. This says, praise God, buddy. You knocked it out of the park from Carol and Ken. Carol and Ken, thanks so much. We love you. We pray that uh, we just keep going. Also, Spencer R. says, I have debated Mormons in the past, and they bring you the seven witnesses of the Book of Mormon. What can I do there? You can go back to 2009, 8, and 7 in our archives at www.hotm.tv, where you'll see the witnesses, and we go and we describe all about the witnesses and how they were all related and that they didn't really claim to say what they say they said. And you can just watch those shows and learn from that. We hope that helps Stephen R. And uh, join us next week as we're going to do another board presentation to justify the stance that material religion is over and that everything is by the Spirit. We'll see you then on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going in This man's awake the storms are rising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the 